Welcome to the December Clinical Echo Update. Our focus this month is on collaboration. Collaboration with the wider NHS and other services and how we can work in new ways with new partners to help address the growing demographic pressures. Matt completes his trilogy, looking at systems, focusing this week on economics and how hospices can avoid the boom and bust economies that have been so destructive in the past. Kate's journal article this month is about how we can better address digital legacy issues and its impact on patients and families going forward. Alison Penny from Childhood Bereavement makes an appeal on behalf of unmarried bereaved parents who have a limited opportunity for claiming funding in the next few months. Fife in Scotland has radically transformed its services delivering care to those approaching the end of life. Joe Bowden explains how this inspiring change has happened in the social health context. And finally, we hear from Faith, Faith Holloway from Hospice UK, about the Carers Leave Act that comes into law this April. But first, we begin recapping on some of the highlights from this year's Hospice UK conference in Liverpool. It was a great conference. Uh, what one of the biggest that I've been at. It made me feel very proud, actually, to be associated with Hospice UK. It was just a really nice feel to it. That was positive. It was very much together as we've gone through so much of these past few years. It was just a, a really good three days. I, the plenaries I wanted to, to highlight: rapid change, the use of technology, collaboration, data, the importance of data, frailty, innovation, new connections. Those are the kind of the themes that I, I took uh, with me. I want to begin with, with plenary one, trends in health relevant to hospice and palliative care with Chris Whitty. And it was great to have him there. And it, it was very affirming to feel his positivity towards the hospice movement and how the hospice movement had coped well with COVID uh, and he he feels we've got so much to contribute to the broader NHS. I'm going to let him speak for himself just for a few minutes because he was talking about a, a range of things which had a, a real relevance and resonance with with what's been happening in palliative care and again with with what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, one of the areas I'm going to focus on is is the disconnect between where the sick people are and where the healthcare services are. So this issue about a mismatch between where the ageing population is and where the population as a whole is, uh, is going to be quite, uh, I think, quite a serious one for us all. And, of course, for the, uh, the age of people using hospices have historically been younger than the average age of people dying, for a variety of reasons uh, you will know. These are Hospice UK uh, data. Uh, but I think this is likely to shift as we see significant demographic shifts in the population. And I'll show you why uh, in just a second. And I think this, again, will require some rethinking for all of us. The reason I think that is that um, the mortality change that we're seeing has actually remained fairly impressive in people in their 70s or below. 
So mortality is continuing to drop in that age group and in my view will continue, will continue to drop and the same is to a large degree true for people in their early 80s. Whereas people in their late 80s and 90s there has been virtually no improvement in mortality over really quite a long period of time now. And I, in my, my view is that is going in fact to persist. What that means is that mortality is becoming increasingly concentrated in quite a narrow age range in the UK and I see this trend in actually continuing to occur. There seems to be an upper age, it's really quite rare now for people who are not living with very significant disability from younger life or in very significant deprivation to die before their mid-70s, most it'll be towards the end of their 70s, and it's still pretty rare for people to die after their mid-90s. And that concentration of age of death is becoming more profound everywhere in the world, but particularly actually it's taken specifically uh, in the UK. So that is going to be something which I think we need to think through. And I think if you look back to that previous slide I was showing in terms of age of at which hospice services tend to be uh, most heavily used, I think we need to take that into account. We also, as Toby talked about earlier on, are going into a period where there are many diseases of old age for which we do not have good treatment. And I'm going to use the dementias uh, Alzheimer's dementia, vascular dementia, Lewy dementia as a proxy for that. But there are others, and this obviously also goes into uh, frailty. This provides uh, challenges for conventional, some elements of conventional hospice care, where it's very difficult to communicate with people in their later life. And this is something which, again, uh, we collectively have to think through. Uh, and finally, uh, in terms of data, before I bring some themes together, um, uh, we have uh, individual um, chronic conditions accumulating with age, multimorbidity. This is something which all of you see, but as you essentially, as the age at which people die goes up, at this point in time, and unless we do something differently, and I think we should, which is the reason I'm writing my annual report, but unless we do something differently, we're going to have a situation where the point, at the point people die, they will have more diseases over time than they had in the past. So it would be fairly normal for people uh, historically to die with one or two diseases in their uh, late 60s or early 70s. By the time people get to their mid 80s, uh, very large numbers of people have multiple diseases, uh, apparently unrelated to one another, or they may, although they may have a single cause, diabetes or obesity or uh, smoking, for example. But the result is we're going to have multi, multiple diseases to deal with symptomatically for a much higher proportion of people as they reach their final, uh, final period uh, than we would have done historically. And again, I think that's something we need to think through. Multimorbidity uh, is increasing uh, and will continue to increase. It occurs at an earlier age in people living in deprivation, but it occurs across the whole social spectrum. So what are the implications of this? This is my uh, final kind of bringing this together. The ability of medical science to move the age of end-stage single diseases to the right I get people to live for longer is going to continue. And particular for people in their late 60s through to late 70s, I think we will continue to see quite significant improvements. Several of the diseases which kill people in young or middle age uh, will cease to do so. I've highlighted two, HIV in high income settings and cervical cancer, but I could have highlighted quite a large number of others. However, the aging population is going to grow and it's going to grow almost exclusively in the periphery. 
where it is more difficult to provide services, and indeed, uh, from an economic point of view, where support from the voluntary sector may be more tricky uh, for a variety of reasons. And I think how the hospice movement thinks about that and responds to it, I think, is uh, going to be quite a significant challenge. Multimorbidity is already an issue for most people who are in their last months of life, but will become more so and for a longer period of time. And that is, again, something we need uh, collectively to respond to. But my final point is a plea, really, to people in this, uh, this audience to help the rest of us in the medical, nursing, and other professions uh, with the fact that the generalist skills of uh, the medical profession, to lesser extent the nursing profession, have become eroded over the last 30 years. We have had a situation where greater specialization has become the norm with a less patient-centered care, in my view, because people are getting better and better at more and more specific things. And for people living with multimorbidity and for people living with multiple conditions, medical, physical and mental, uh, this is quite problematic. And I think as a medical profession, and as I say to some extent in nursing, I think we need to relearn how to maintain generalist skills, including the kind of approach to the whole patient which comes from this movement, in addition to the specialist skills. Those two are not, in my view, in conflict. Uh, and I would like to see the kind of thinking that has come from the hospice movement extend much further away from the point of death, down the age range, into the period uh, of, of older age, so we really are concentrating collectively on quality of life and the whole person, rather than specifically individual diseases, important though those are. So I think this is something which it doesn't just stand in hospices, I think can extend more fur further out. What a fascinating kind of overview and thinking in terms of a whole range of, of key kind of issues about what we can anticipate that is coming towards us. He talks about workforce and that disconnect. He talks about the need for generalism. He talks about the need for, for what we can bring to the, to the broader healthcare service. So I think what he says is really pertinent to our future. A second plenary uh, was from Dr. Amara, uh, who's been a Churchill Fellow looking at artificial intelligence in connection with palliative care. His talk, again, was fascinating, taking it forward, thinking about how uh, AI can maybe help and, uh, yeah, dealing with the issue. I, I loved his analogy that AI is like a rather loud and noisy neighbor moving in next door. And, um, yeah, it, you can try and ignore it, but the balls will come over the fence. The noise will come through the walls. And, you know, you've got to learn to build an accommodation. It's here. It's already here. So uh, we can't be obscurist and, and try and ignore it. So, yeah, I, I, I think I like that analogy. Uh, and he was thinking about the positives that AI can bring in such areas as prognostication with so much more data to be able to put together in order to be more accurate in, in this area. A really interesting paper. And uh, he talked about Emma the palliative care patient of 2060, taking advantage of the different AI components in her house and in her living, which is monitoring her, raising up the issues before they, they, they arise, helping her with her loneliness, helping her so many different ways in which AI could be contributing to better end of life, better last phase of life stuff. 
His conclusions, AI is already here. Focus, he encourages us to focus on the practical applications of AI rather than getting into the binary, oh, this is an awful thing. I don't like this. Uh, what can it do as opposed to focusing in on the kind of existential issues? And we need interdisciplinary research to explore how AI can best be used in palliative care. Having that AI support could allow us to do some of those things that Chris Whitty was asking us to be us to be more informed generally and have access to uh, MDM type meetings through AI. More research needed, more research needed. Moving on uh, uh, to the third plenary. This was my favorite, uh, living well, frailty care closer to home. And, and this was uh, from Dan Hartman, a, a, a community geriatrician working in Hull and his vision and what they've achieved in Hull through the Liz Bishop Center. It was something that made me drool in terms of this is what we should be doing or could be doing in collaboration. Um, I, I've since asked Dan and his team, would they come to our area in Northern Ireland and, and share their vision? Because I, I hope we would be able to, to maybe to, to copy what they were talking about, working collaboratively together to help support that rapidly growing age, aged, frail population who are going more and more to be in our bailiwick as well as in the bailiwick of our geriatrician colleagues. And their work, 24-7 uh, urgent community response team, uh, frailty management, falls management, working collaboratively together uh, um, has had a real impact on people attending ED, on people being able to stay at home, on, um, on maximizing the health span of people uh, working collaboratively together. And it also created a whole new world for me and a whole new concept for me. We've been building this fellowship, we call it Integrated Care, mixture of palliative care and uh, care of the elderly curricula. But, but maybe we need to be thinking of palliatrics and working collaboratively together to, 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 to help with this growing demographic challenge for us all. Move on to that. So, okay. So, I find that really interesting. We looked in another plenary uh, uh, at the influence of the Lucy Letby case for hospices. And uh, again, this was challenging. We were very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Henrietta Hughes, who's the patient safety, the new patient safety commissioner. And she was uh, pointing out that these issues raised in the Lucy Letby case they, they are also issues for us in hospice land. And how do we listen to the voice of patients and families? Maybe we're not so good at that because we're, we're used to being told, oh, you're wonderful. But, but how do we pick up beyond that? Uh, how do you listen to the voice of workers? And yeah, uh, and how do you learn from incidents and concerns uh, when it's maybe difficult for us to do so? Uh, and she also highlighted the new change in law in relation to Martha's rule, uh, allow, uh, make, put, make putting on the statute book that people who require a second opinion are, are eligible or should be allowed to get that as quickly as possible. 
uh, maybe not easy to arrange in a single a single handed practice, but uh, yeah. So these were important issues raised in the plenary. Closing plenary from Wales, uh, Idris uh, Idris Barker talking about the, the the rollout across the country and its future and its developments and issues that it, it caught me by Idris's presentation was the, our need to be able to capture all that we do, uh, not just kind of let it ride by, but he, he highlighted the fish tank. If we think the fish tank is helpful in hospice, how do we demonstrate, how do we measure that? How can we show that what we're doing is adding real value? Uh, and what what variation is there that, that demonstrates again that what we're doing is 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 important. Uh, yeah. So interesting set of 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 talks. Uh, data again. Uh, we had Fliss and uh, Fliss Murta and Roz Taylor really pressing the importance of data collection. We had MPs talking about how we can can communicate better with them. Fundraising issues. A whole range of different talks. Uh, uh, this was a, a highlight. Uh, this is Wendy Mitchell, who since her diagnosis of dementia has written three times bestsellers books uh, and her account of her journey with dementia uh, was, was inspiring, inspiring. Finish with a, the, the, the closing big related to a, a, a young nurse, Emma Matthews from St. Luke's in Sheffield, who spent time with senior nurses in Uganda and the opportunity to hear how she learned and to understand their practice in Uganda uh, was salutary and helpful and inspiring all together. Uh, the the, the uh, posters were another absolute highlight and gold at the conference. I'm going to uh, ask Melanie to, to talk a little bit about that because she's been talking about them for a while at the Echo. Thank you, Max. Just wanted to start by saying a, a massive thank you to all of you um, who supported the call for papers for our national conference, either by submitting work yourselves, encouraging colleagues to get involved, or as delegates um, at the event itself. Um, as the second slide shows, it's been an absolute bumper year for the call for papers. Um, we have more than 350 abstracts submitted to our review panel, and of those, 291 were selected for oral or post-presentation. So you can see the wealth of information that was um, on show there. For the second year, we offered a mentoring scheme to support those who are new to the business of writing abstracts, um, and the scheme, again, had strong take-up. And I'm delighted to say that the evaluation of the scheme um, has again proved its effectiveness this year. So that's been really helpful and I'm delighted we've been able to do that. Feedback from delegates about the poster exhibition at Liverpool was fantastic. And if I can just address one element of feedback here, then in response to some of the comments from delegates wanting to see the posters offline, 
If I just remind you that the conference app is still available to delegates and it features PDFs of the posters. For those of you who weren't there, um, abstracts of the poster and all presentations selected from the call for papers are all published online in a special supplement of BMJ Supportive and Palliative Care. And that QR code will take you direct to um, the page on the journal's website. So then just looking ahead um, on to 2024, when we're going to be back in Glasgow in November, I'm delighted to say that the mentorship scheme will be back. And if you have experience in writing for publication and would like to help support others, please do get in touch and we can just have a, a chat about um, what's involved in that. We're also working on more support next year for those who are new to the business of writing abstracts. And in the new year, we're going to be holding a sort of call for papers light, um, which is going to give people the opportunity to have a chat to our call for papers team about ideas they might be thinking of working up into an abstract for submission. So look out for news of that um, coming your way um, next month, I think. I think well, that's it really for me. I'd just like to say many thanks for your support. And I hope those of you who are taking a break in the next couple of weeks have a relaxing one. <laughs> Thanks very much, Melanie, and thank you for all the work that went in to uh, uh, shepherding the, the the posters. Uh, they, they were they they just show a, a vibrant sector that we're part of. Matt, over to you and the final trilogy in in systems thinking. Yes, this is our final one, Max, in terms of uh, systems thinking within palliative care. So we're going to do a really quick update on the last two, and then we'll go into the third. The, but really the overall ethos is we're looking at how, where does palliative care fit in the current system and how can we best use it? And, and there's speakers subsequent, which really, 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 solidify all this so let's crack on month one we talked about simple machines and complex machines a simple machine is like a bike the chain breaks no matter how hard you pedal it ain't going to work as a complex machine and that mess of color there is the liver with all the different enzymes if the liver has a, a can't metabolize well metabolize something you can do different routes and there's a main route, but there's also subsidiary routes. And those subsidiary routes can are less efficient. It's a bit like a big traffic jam. There's a motorway. And if it's a big traffic jam, sometimes it's you can go around the peripheral on the on the country roads, which are less efficient. And that creates a frailty. And stop drooling, Max, in terms of the word frailty. But there is a uh, that th that is what frailty is. It's a buildup of subsidiary pathways that we we, we bit, a whole body builds up but that doesn't just apply to our biochemical system it applies to the whole of the nhs i believe we are in a frail nhs whereby a lot of the motorways are jammed and we start using these subsidiary pathways these bypasses now in month two well i think we oh yeah we're working in frail nhs month two well, why are we gridlocked in those big motorways? Why, why is that happening? Have the roads got smaller? I think some of them have, the, the big roads. But sometimes, why is all the traffic going down those motorways? And we came up with a story, and I'll go very, very briefly through this story, in that there was a nursing home, there's Bob. Nurse didn't think it was quite right. 
the nurse phones the supervisor. Well, follow protocol, be safe, phone 111. 111 said, well, ooh, not quite right, phone an ambulance. The ambulance came, picked up Bob, take to A&E, had to stay the night and goes home again. And we talked about sort of type 1 and type 2 errors. So this pathway is kind of set, it's rigid. And it's, it's rigid because that, that there is this is playing safe, deferring responsibility is a much stronger force than uh, than taking a risk, maybe taking a bit more responsibility for it. And why is that? What well, what what is happening there? And and so next slide we've got type one, type of two errors. I don't know if you we probably see this in research, but one is, one error is is the risk of sending the patient in, and there being nothing. Uh, nothing wrong and the other risk the other error is not sending them in but that there is something wrong and if there's, there's a balance isn't there if you go next slide you'll see the seesaw effect that this patient doesn't go in but is sent in the patient needs to go in but is not sent in how do you and we weigh it much for it towards the going in because we don't want anything going wrong but yet we there is probably in a lot of situations, just as much risk in going in, catching infections, going into hospital, the trauma of that, ED, et cetera, which we don't weigh as highly. So what's happened? The system, the motorway is rigid. It's jamming everyone down it. Next slide, Max, you can see it's rigid. It can't bend, it's solid. And and uh, the way I combated that is, is, is sort of using a football pitch analogy. And uh, if you look at a football pitch, there's there's rules of football. You know, there's sidelines. You can't pick it up. Uh, have we extended rules to how you play football rather than creating a framework in which we can play? The rules are the framework and we can kick the ball around inside that, that pitch. Or have we incorporated rules? No, in this situation, in this, as a defender, you must do this or, or attacker, you must do this. We've narrowed the rules of football. We've created more rules. I wondered that. I postulated that. I don't know if that resonated or not, but it's something to think about. So month two, we talked about that. So in accumulation, we've got a frail NHS and we've got a rigid NHS. So we're frail and rigid. How do we address that? And I think I put one slide in which I was thinking of deleting, but our, our system often forces our hands. We can't play the best game because of that system. And there is a responsibility there, and that's an element of it. Can we take responsibility, or are we unfortunately blamed? Anyway, let's move on to month three. And this is, I'm going to tie those two together with palliative care economics, because this is what's playing on everyone's mind. And I've done a bit, tried to do a bit of reading economics, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced I'm more worse than the layman here. But very, very briefly, there's classical economics, which is supply and demand, that the demand dictates the uh, um, supply. So if demand goes up, supply will follow. And if if demand goes down, supply will, will also follow. It the, the theory is that they match each other. They naturally match each other. But that has kind of been proven wrong by Keynesian uh, economics. And that's pretty much what most uh, modern Western economics thinking. Now, they, they don't think they match. Our supply, our demand of patients far outweighs our supply, for instance. And naturally, things follow a cycle that, that, that there is ups and downs. And that's what we see in macroeconomics in terms of this sort of 10, 15 year cycle of, 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 of recessions. And the Keynesian idea is uh, that you to, to the better way to manage economic 
stability is to narrow that wavelength. So to smooth the ups and downs. And if you smooth the ups and downs, you uh, create confidence in the economy and therefore you create a system which people can muscle through the tough times and, uh, and, 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 and maybe don't do quite as well in the good times. So uh, in terms of macroeconomics, that is pumping money and tax uh, money into the economy in tough times and lowering taxes in tough times and increasing taxes and, uh, and decreasing money into the system in good times. Now, that can be taken both macro and micro. If you go to the next slide, we'll wonder if we are, uh, are, are looking at our system more often in a more classical way than a Keynesian way in terms of the economics of palliative care. And there's loads and loads of factors here. But I think the biggest one in England and Wales, we'll hear about Scotland in a little bit, um, is 37% is, is commissioned, 63% um, is, is charity funded. So we've got a huge charitable thing. And some charities do better in terms of the charitable shops, I think, do better in recession. Um, uh, but the donoring doesn't, so it kind of levels out. And the, the, the so we, we're dictated by that charitable thing. The demand far outwits the supply. Um, but I see the, the problem, we, sometimes we write it out, but often what happens, and what, and what I'm hearing is we do cut. Now, the problem with cutting, taking a classical response to that, is that it's much harder to rebuild than it is to, to kind of weather through the tough times. And it's harder for us to weather through the tough times because we're so dependent upon the charitable sector in, in England and Wales and all that. I, so I, and these are provocative. So a commissioner's perspective, and, and they're deliberately provocative, but in terms of are these what the commissioners are thinking and can we challenge them? Do commissioners see hospices as fairly paid at 37 for the core and all the rest is exaggerated and bells and whistles? Do commissioners see this as already paid for by charity? Thus, it's money saved. It's not urgent. We, they're already doing it. Do they see it as essential or, or a luxury? Do they see as an easy area to push? We're so lovely. Push them into the long grass. It ignore them. Don't GPs do it anyway? Aren't we paying twice? Isn't this bells and whistles? They, they, I, I wonder if sometimes commissioners are thinking that. And then it got me thinking, well, what do our own hospices sometimes think? What do our own um, uh, higher-uppers sometimes think? And, and again, provocative. I'm not. I'm just ballparking out there. I'm not accusing anyone. Do hospitals sometimes see the survival of the organization as the primary aim of the organization rather than the purpose of providing excellent palliative care? Um, does the higher management officer see us as essential? Or actually, are we a supplementary service? Is that how they see us? Do hospitals see themselves as moral flagships rather than an essential service? I, and I, I, I wonder if these narratives do sometimes creep in and, and whether we can uh, address and, and, and maybe uh, poke these uh, in our own, for our own places too. And it all comes down to the question when I'm talking to commissioners, they always ask, well, what is specialist palliative care? I think that's a wrong question. I think the right question is, well, can you define for me generalist palliative care? And if you press the button, you'll see the bubble come up. What is generalist palliative care? I think that is actually uh, I will turn it around. If someone asks me what's special, well, you define journalist part of care. And I'm going to define it for you now, I think. If you look at uh, a cardiologist, 
I, I put specialist cardiologist there, but you think of a consultant cardiologist, you think of a specialist cardiologist when I say cardiologist, you don't ever use the word generalist cardiologist. Now, the GP does the majority of the antihypertensives and blood pressure management. And only when it gets really complicated, do you refer to a specialist? Um, and depending on what it is, sometimes that's not cardiology, but the there is a there isn't such a thing as a generous cardiologist. There's not such thing as a generous pulmonologist. There's not a thing as a there are generalists. And there there are specialists. I think we are specialist palliative care. Uh, and there isn't really such a thing as generous palliative care. I think that is the wrong, wrong definition. If you go to the next slide, I think we've confused the ethos of palliative care, which is what I think we mean by generous palliative care, with a specialty of palliative care. And of course, the specialty of palliative care has a responsibility for the generalists, the GPs. We are the ones which direct on the new things, try and help out. We're the ones where cardiologists do the pacemakers, the angiography, the difficult things which uh, the G generalists can't do. That there is, that's that's a dichotomy. I'd, I've simplified it an awful lot. Um. I think there's three levels. There's fundamental core. That is the ethos of palliative care. That is everyone's responsibility. And we have a responsibility as well to expound it and encourage it and teach it and help with it. Then there is the essential service. That's the hospices, that's specialist palliative care nurses, that's community teams. That is essentially what we do. That is an essential service. And then on top of that, because there is room for the charitable sector within uh, all of this is the enhanced services, the non-specialist bereavement services, hairdressing. I, I, nothing against hairdressers, Max. I, the, 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 there is the, there is a room for charitable sector to be involved in enhancing the essential service, but isn't the essential service itself? I think that and and then portray that model that we are essential, and then when you if you go to the next slide, Max, you you. And last slide to summarize, I just trying to articulate, we, we are in a frail and rigid health service. We are economically in the downturn at the moment. Um, I think we should advocate for this Keynesian model to ride it out. And to ride it out, I know this charitable funding is difficult, but we, we need to sell ourselves. And I know we do, but sell ourselves even more. We are essential. And to articulate that as clearly as we can, and you can't just cut an essential service. Um, and it's much, much harder to rebuild than support. Um, and I, you'll see some excellent speakers in in, uh, in the coming bit, which which um, maybe offers some solutions in regards to that. Thank you, Max. Um, we're going to move to York and to Kate. Happy Christmas, Kate. Happy Christmas, Max, um, and welcome everybody to the December Echo. Can't believe we're at the end of the year already. Not quite sure where it's gone. Um, so, a study I picked up on as part of uh, the Hospice UK conference. I was lucky to be there for two of the three days, and as Max said, it was it was absolutely outstanding. I think the best that I've been to. Um, and Dr. Amara, who uh, featured earlier in Max's um, update from the conference around his talk on AI, also talked about this paper that he and colleagues um, up in Liverpool had, had undertaken with the lead author being Sarah Stanley. 
Um, and it really kind of caught my attention in as much as I, I don't think I've thought that much about digital legacy. And they had undertaken some qualitative research, um, which looked as di at digital legacy um, as starting to be incorporated in advanced care planning. So I thought we'd unpick this study a little bit more. It's a grounded theory study, which is one of the approaches, um, the methodological approaches you can use in qualitative research. Um, so next slide, please, Max. Um, and the, the aim of the study was around understanding what healthcare professionals knew about digital legacy. Um, they kind of acknowledged there was a lack of evidence supporting the use of digital legacy as part of advanced care planning conversations. So just kind of getting a sense of where palliative care professionals were in relation to this. And it was took place in a hospice in the northwest of England. And I realised in my slide that I didn't actually put in a definition of di digital legacy, which is one of their kind of outcomes as well. Um, and basically what it talks about, what digital legacy is, is online content, which is available about someone um, after their death. Um, so many, many of us on this call, if not all, possibly have some kind of mobile phone, tablet, device, cloud-based system for storing all sorts of things, including our photographs, videos, uh, music, all the rest of it. And so all of these components uh, comprise of our, digi uh, our digital footprint and therefore also our digital legacy once we die. So next slide, please, Max. So they undertook some semi-structured interviews, which are interviews which are kind of ask open questions um, to explore people's um, experiences and views on any a particular topic. Um, and they did this with a range of palliative healthcare professionals. They had a, a consultant, um, including bereavement coordinator, chaplain, registered nurses, OTs, um, and also some people who work uh, within the bereavement coordinators, some who work specifically with children. Um, there was possibly the usual range of experience working at the hospice between one and 20 years, um, which may well reflect the kind of range of experience working in your own hospices. Um, and you can see there the list of the questions that they asked of these health professionals. So a small study, but I think quite informative and enlightening. Um, and, and one certainly you can start to think of in relation to your own practice. So what's the experience of digital legacy? Why should we consider discussing it? What benefits might that have to patients and carers? Um, have you ever discussed it? Um, that was a specific question. Um, what support do you feel you might need to be more confident in having these conversations? And what would encourage you to discuss digital legacy more often with patients? So that was what was asked of these individuals. So what they found and kind of summarising up, and I'd encourage you to read the paper. It's a very, very readable paper, which, it, which is a lovely one to, to get hold of. So the kind of four key components, and one of the things around grounded theory um, and its approach is that you develop a theory through that approach. And so the theory that they um, uh, kind of identified was around understanding the impact of dig digital legacy, which is that circle or oval in the middle. But the four components are kind of all interrelate in relation to this. And I'll start with accessing digital legacy. And that was very much around actually patients being asked to consider enabling access to their digital belongings. So get, ensuring that those passwords are, are shared, that actually that people know, people other than them know how to access um, their, their, their digital footprint, I guess, um, so that then it can be handled as a digital legacy once they've died. And you can see how this then starts to build into the advanced care planning things. And one of the things that they, that they kind of recommended in relation to that was actually identifying somebody possibly somebody younger um, who could help manage that, particularly for older patients, should should those people have, have um, kind of digital belongings that, that will need managing once they die. 
And within that is kind of the real importance of family and friends being able to access um, and the, the sentimental assets such as photographs, videos, music, as I talked, talked about earlier on. So within this also then is a raising awareness of digital legacy, both through staff and through patients and their families. And around that, about the, the kind of the importance of, of staff education, but also more broadly, a rate, awareness raising at a societal level um, and how we might go about that. They talked also about the impact on grief and bereavement of maintaining a digital legacy um, and actually in, enabling that connection through digital memories that people have once somebody's if somebody's died, such as the photographs, the music, the playlists on Spotify. And there's a really nice little quote, I think, about being able to see just the mannerisms of being alive through somebody's digital legacy. Um, and we know even looking back on photos and videos from five, six years ago that pop up when Facebook reminds you of something, anything, and just that kind of memory and living through what's gone in the past. So a key component of this that we're talking about is about this being part and becoming of advanced care planning and actually having the confidence to have these discussions with people in amongst all the other elements of advanced care planning and identifying that it might not be something that an individual is thinking about, as there may be other things they aren't thinking about, but actually our responsibility as health professionals um, to talk about accessing digital legacy with patients and families. And it really is felt that the ACP side of things is a natural place for it to sit, but a real fear and lack of confidence um, amongst some healthcare professionals in doing that. So what kind of do we propose from this? If I could have the next slide. Thanks, Max. Um, it's got a real growing significance in palliative care, both now and into the future. It's only going to get bigger, ain't going to go away. Um, Education is needed for health professionals to feel confident about opening up conversations with patients, as we know there is about kind of um, advanced care planning more broadly as well. It's got a really important role in bereavement, supporting bereaved people, ma maintaining a connection, and therefore it's also really important for people using bereavement services and running bereavement services to be educated around digital legacy. Um, so it's part of ongoing legacy work and memory-making interventions that the bereavement services are so good at doing. And then around kind of the policy angle of this, um, around a clear definition for health professionals to identify what's meant by digital legacy and actually starting also to build this into um, ACP policy making as well. So that's the paper for this month, this month Max. Thank so you. Thank you very much indeed, Kate. I mean, it, it's so pertinent and, and it's really coming very, very rapidly towards us. I mean, a year yeah. ago, this all sounded a bit wacky uh, but 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 now we're 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 see and we're seeing people's digital legacy actually developing a value in itself mm -hmm. and and so I think within a year we're going to be in a very different place. Thank you very much indeed. You you were going to introduce Alison. I am indeed going to introduce Alison. So <laughs> Alison Penny um, is with us today and well known to many of you, I'm sure. Um, and Alison's got a little bit of ask on behalf of the Childhood, Childhood Bereavement Network. So if I can hand over to you, Alison. Thanks so much, Kate. Um, and that was uh, such an interesting presentation. I'm really looking forward to reading that paper. Um, and it really chimed with some of the work that we're doing at the Childhood Bereavement Network around encouraging 
parents to put plans in place in case they die before their children grow up. Um, so things that might be comforting or make make life more comfortable for, for the children, which includes addressing digital legacy. So I'll put our Plan If campaign in the chat in a moment. Um, but I was really grateful um, to Matt and Max and Kate for saying I could come along just to talk very briefly about um, another campaign that we're running at the Childhood Bereavement Network. I know some of you have been involved with this campaign um, uh, up, up to now. Um, just very briefly, I wanted to share um, Siobhan's story with you. Siobhan McLaughlin um, is a mum of four. Um, she was with her partner, John, uh, for 23 years <clears throat> before he died. They had four children together. And after he died in 2014, um, Siobhan discovered that she wasn't eligible to claim widowed parents allowance, which is the benefit that is available to um, uh, parents bringing up dependent children um, after their partner has died. And she wasn't eligible because she and John weren't married um, and nor were they in a civil partnership. Um, they, they'd been living together for 23 years, but um, that wasn't enough. Um, so many of you know there's been a long campaign to change the law in this area and we were delighted in February of this year um, when finally um, things changed. Um, but we do have a bit of a, a, a narrow window to try and find some of the families eligible. So we estimate that there are over 20,000 families in Siobhan's position who were denied these benefits, um, but who are now eligible for a, a back payment, a retrospective payment. Um, and some of those families would have been bereaved as long ago as 2001. So we've got a real challenge on our hands. We um, have worked with BBC Moneybox programme and also with moneysavingexpert.com. Um, um, a freedom of information request um, uh, back in September revealed that uh, less than half of the families that could be eligible for these back payments have claimed them. And they are really life changing sums in, in, in some cases, not, not all cases, but some cases. So we really, really need your help. We think that some of these families might now be supporters of hospices. They're probably, those bereaved longer ago are probably unlikely to be accessing bereavement support services now, but they may well be um, among um, your supporters. So if there's anything that you can do to get the news out there, we would be really grateful if you could share it. We're encouraging people to look at um, our website at the Childhood Bereavement Network forward slash cohabiting for details of eligibility and how to claim. It is quite a complex picture. So we're suggesting that people get welfare benefits advice if they want to check their eligibility. Um, but the, the main thing to remember is it's people who would have been eligible when the law changed, which actually with the, the court's ruling was in August 2018. But this could be families where one of the parents died as long ago as 2001. So anything you can do to help i'll put the the details in the chat and thanks so much for the slot and we're we're very pleased to be joined today by by dr joe bowden um, who doesn't work in a hospice who works as part of the nhs part of the system uh, in fife and uh, her experience and her account of, of how they've they've developed their service, um, I, I think I hope you'll find it as inspiring as I did. Great to be with you all today. I feel like a bit of an imposter because I am from um, uh, an entirely health and social care partnership funded service, but um, maybe that provides a good you know opportunity to share learning between our. Um, 
you know, different sectors, so to speak. Um, so next slide, please. Um, so it was in response to this um, previous national strategy um, from our government and this ambition that by 2021, so we're already past that, obviously, that um, everyone in Scotland would have access to palliative care who needs it, that um, led us really to start thinking about or to start thinking more seriously about how fit we were for the future as a specialist service. Um, and particularly thinking as well about equitable access to both specialist and generalist care and our role in that. So we secured funding from Macmillan um, in 2018 for a service review. And here are the headlines. Um, there were some um, there was some nice feedback, but there were very clear areas for improvement. And there was a wake up call for us to realize that the overwhelming majority of our budget um, was directed towards care for a tiny minority of uh, patients. So six months before the pandemic and with um, within our existing staffing, we set up a specialist palliative care hotline for our colleagues all across five. So that's GPs, district nurses, care home staff, hospital staff so that we could give them immediate uh, palliative care advice and support um, and so that they could easily ask us to see a patient or family or to admit someone from the hospital to the hospice rather without needing to fill in any forms um, or send emails or letters. Thank you. So when COVID-19 hit us six months after we established the hotline, we were able to extend this immediate advice and support hotline to our colleagues seven days a week and this continues. So with, with the pandemic, of course, many more people chose to be cared for at home. And we quickly had two hospice units that were half full with too many staff, but not enough nurses, doctors and colleagues to see people at home. Um, and of course, in the many care homes and community hospitals across Fife. And so in April 2020, we made this very difficult decision to go down to one hospice unit rather than having these two half empty units. And we did this so that we could mobilise the nurses, healthcare assistants and doctors into a new team, um, a so-called outreach team who could see and support people seven days a week, wherever they were across Fife. Um, there were, of course, many reasons why um, uh, fewer people wanted hospice care during that time. But this reduced demand for hospice care remains unchanged over the last three and a half years. So the support includes hands-on nursing care to help people with hygiene and toileting needs, it includes nursing and medical assessments of symptoms, of course, starting and monitoring treatments such as pain relief. Um, it includes family support and help with practical matters such as equipment and quite a lot of care and support for people in their last days of life at home. So our team is still delivering this care and we're supporting at any one time about 65 patients and families from all over Fife. Uh, and this is seven days a week, um, uh, 12 hours a day. Uh, and we do this very much alongside our patients and families, um, sorry, our patients' own families uh, and other unpaid carers, our colleagues in district nursing, GPs, social care and Marie Curie Um and this is an average of 765 patient contacts of month, a month, of which um, nearly 300 are face-to-face. -face. So this community footprint also encompasses care homes and community hospitals. Um, and alongside care in the community, we have a seven-day multidisciplinary acute hospital team uh, seeing around 80 patients a month with an average of almost 300 face-to-face -face visits. Um, so as, as well as the changes I've described, um, our colleagues in district nursing and urgent care have established um, a 24-hour hotline for patients and families. And this is for people where the ill person is has been identified as being in their last weeks of life at home. It's been a real um, success to national acclaim with these patients and families now not needing to call NHS 24, instead going straight through to a call handler who can find the right district nurse for the patient. And more than eight out of 10 people who use this line are now able to die at home in Fife. Um, another big change in social care is that an end of life care team 
was established. So that's two carers up to four times a day for people all over Fife. Um, and we're joined up as a specialist service with our colleagues like never before. And that's being in patients' homes together, but but also in twice daily huddles um, and at a management level too, which is really um, important. So people are now much more likely um, to die at home, but also to spend much more time at home in those last weeks and months of life. Um, next slide, please. So we know that when home isn't possible, um, being close to home is often very important, not least because of travel for families. And this map shows all of the five hospitals, including five community hospitals where palliative care is provided. Patients and their families can access palliative and end-of-life care close to home in their local community hospital with the offer of visits from our team on any day of the week in any of these settings, um, wherever that's needed. Next slide, please. So how we've sort of come to conceptualize our uh, hospice beds, if you like, is as a type of intensive care. So it's obviously vitally important for some people, but we know that in fact, most people at the end of life don't need hospice care and can have their palliative care needs met at home in a care home or in a hospital. Um, and since the beginning of the pandemic now, three years ago, or um, more like four, isn't it? We've had just one hospice unit. Before the pandemic, when we had two units, people waited an average of three and a half days um, for a bed. And in fact, since we've had one unit, um, this waiting time is more than halved. I think most recently it's about 1.3 days. So most or many people are admitted on the, on the day that a bed's needed. And for anyone who's waiting, we now have this seven day support for them wherever they are. Um, next slide, please. Uh, maybe even the last slide. So we've sought a lot of feedback from staff right across Fife. So we've sur surveyed all GPs and district nurses. We've held a lot of stakeholder events with colleagues in the public, and that's partly because we've needed approval to um, cement this new model of care. Um, and we've welcomed, of course, a lot of feedback via various informal means as well. We've also recently completed a research study where we've interviewed 27 individuals from 20 families about the reality of uh, being cared for at home at the end of life and particularly the reality of being a, an unpaid caregiver. Um, and, uh, and that's generated some really important learning. So people have told us why home is where they want to spend most of their time, um, uh, but also they've stressed to us the importance of having immediate access to responsive care and support. And of course, that's specialist and generalist if it's, if it's going to work. And of course, alternative places of care um, where that's needed. So we're continuing to listen and learn. Um, and uh, we have recent uh, and future planned research um, around illuminating experiences further. And that's going to help us to steer next next stage improvements. So um, we know how passionate people are about hospice care in our region, and we very much are too, but we are also really mindful of the fact that we have to think as specialists how we can support good palliative care for all who need it. I don't know if um, Matt will want to come in after this, but maybe moving away from that kind of excellence for a minority to support good or good enough for the majority. Uh, and that's, of course, seven days a week, wherever people are. Um, and we can evidence certainly with confidence that we're offering hospice to those who need it, uh, but whilst also offering far more specialist support in other settings and also being a good responsive support for our generalist palliative care colleagues who, of course, deliver the majority of palliative care themselves. Would, would you have any advice for hospices in, in how they might be able to integrate themselves better within local NHS networks like in Fife? Um, oh, gosh. I, um, I think one of the things is to try and understand, I guess, how your resources are used currently 
And it was a, a real wake up call to recognize that, you know, a, the, the lion's share of our budget was spent on care for a tiny number of people. And I think if if we could evidence um, convincingly that those people all needed that intensive, real intensive care that you get in a hospice, then that would, of course, be justifiable. But I think we were very aware that too often hospice was what was expected or what people preferred. Um, but actually, if that's at the expense of people with specialist needs um, or generalist workforces who need some specialist support to do their generalist care, then... Um, you know, then that wasn't right. And um, so I think a kind of being open to thinking critically about inpatient beds, I think is really, uh, is really important. And certainly in neighbouring health boards, um, the inpatient um, specialist footprint has has shrunk for all sorts of different reasons. But um, I think, you know, I'm certainly aware of other units looking at, um, looking at, uh, you know, having fewer people in these really intensive bed settings. I think collaboration is key and that's about knowing our colleagues on the ground in real time, um, but also kind of at other levels as well. So kind of collaborative education, peer learning. Um, we have our community MDT meeting. We regularly um, do that alongside district nurses and other colleagues. So there's that kind of being useful to each other on the ground as sort of phone a friend but it's also really important at the the management level um that there's sort of oversight and accountability for specialist and generalist services in a single forum or multiple fora but um you know that it's important that that we're not siloed from each other and i think i think that is both about a kind of bottom up and a and a top down approach in tandem and are you working closely alongside community geriatricians and others or? Yeah, we do. Um, I think we could do better. I think that's definitely an area that needs more formal um, sort of co-development, but we deliver care in parallel often. So we have a really fantastic hospital at home service in Fife. Um, so their um, their mission, I guess, is to support older people at home, um, you know, with conditions that ordinarily would necessitate hospital admission and not unsurprisingly a number of um those those patients end up uh within a sort of palliative pathway so there is some overlap there um uh and community ask. hospitals as well and yeah. and i suppose to some extent care homes but i think we could we, a lot of that isn't planned it's just quite organic um uh, yeah but i think it's that, that's probably better in some other regions we have good relationships but we we haven't really formalized um sort of pathways in any collaborative way and, and are you all using the same electronic care record or are you indifferent yeah good question so we've recently in the last couple of years our service now uses the same community record that district nurses use so you know if i the people i saw at home yesterday you know within within well as soon as i'd written their notes any district nurse would be able to see those and likewise i could see what a district nurse an hour before had done um or two hours later so that's good and that record populates our secondary care records as well where we're not joined up well is with gps so because they've all got their own systems but whenever we see somebody at home um we uh, we always copy the kind of our notes in an email to the to a generic email address for the GP surgery and for the district nurse team for the area. So GPs at least have the opportunity to be updated in very real time in it, you know, and they can paste those into their own records. But I think information sharing is, it could be better, but it's certainly a, a lot better than it was. And I think just removing 
the need for sort of referral letters and form filling um, has definitely improved our, we're now incredibly accessible. You know, we don't have to, you don't have to sort of phone the hospice, try and find a doctor who's, who might be in the middle of a ward round. Um, we have, you know, two staff on uh, seven days a week who can deal with a lot of queries in, in real time. And actually almost half of um, calls that come in are, are simply about advice or a bit of peer support or just checking um, so it's much more efficient. Matthias, you were asking a, a question there. I wonder, would you like to put it directly yourself? Joe, I was wondering, we did something similar when we closed our inpatient unit here in Odom in the northwest of England. Um, and we've since reopened uh, all of uh, hospice inpatient capacity again and are, are very much back to business as usual. Um, we, we talked previously about the funding models for palliative care and hospice care in particular. So I just wonder, is that the same in five? Would you have, you know, two thirds of funding coming from charitable sources? Is there something that the change in your model where you say you would like to reach out to more people and provide care that's good enough rather than excellent for the few? Is that something that had a negative impact on funding support from the charitable sector or from, from the general public? Thank you. So I think it's um it's a double edged double edged situation to be in, but we're entirely funded by our health and social care partnerships. So the the great thing about that is there's um sort of system accountability um for um for for delivering specialist palliative care services. So we don't have any charitable funding at all. Um, uh, donations in five tend to end up in a in a sort of an endowment pot, and we do tap that for research and sort of quality improvement, but not not for delivery. So we've always in five looked shabbier in terms of our um you know our buildings and our um our settings um you know we don't have patisserie trolleys we don't have um a lot of the frills that you find you know i've worked in many independent hospices we don't have those frills um and you know i guess in the past i think we've probably felt disadvantaged because of that but as our ethos more recently has changed to to trying to get you know a lot of um, settings up from or to support others to get you know improved palliative care from one to two star or three star I think we've become much more comfortable with having fewer frills because the bottom line is people in a hospice don't matter more than people in a care home or a community hospital or any other setting so although you know our, you know, my colleagues working in the hospice have always wanted to do, you know, the absolute best they can and give their patients and families the absolute best. We we have to be sort of realistic that that can't be the at the expense of delivering kind of more basic care to people across five. I think I think that kind of specialist and generalist divide is very difficult. And um, the reality is as well that some of our um, GP practices in Fife are on their knees, um, as I'm sure is the case across the UK. And so actually quite often what we're providing there is very basic. And you would say objectively, it's a gen it's, it's, it's a generalist level, but if there's unmet need, then of course we um, will look to meet that. And uh, the same, you know, I'm going to be in and around all, all of Fife this weekend in any, in every setting. Um, and I imagine a lot of what I do might not be the most complex, but it'll be urgent and in a way that's where uh that's where we come in in, a, in that sort of out of hours period so i think we've yeah sort of flexed um around the needs of the population more than we ever had done before but this yeah the funding i think we are in many ways very fortunate um, joe joe yeah. joe I, I'm aware that you've recently been speaking with the Scottish mm -hmm. government, the commissioners in relation to this. 
I'm aware that you've had a national award that people have seen what you've done and and, and seen as replicate yeah that just should be repeated elsewhere and uh, just to final question is just what about the antibodies generated from closing a hospice or how did Fife cope with that? And, yeah. and what happened to the staff who were there? Have they moved into uh, NHS employment? And how did you do that transition? So, I mean, it, it was handled really um, sensitively and thoughtfully because we knew, we knew and know now that people feel so passionately and emotively about hospice care and um, just as people do about maternity services and critical care units and you know in any region um, people want to feel that you know their bit of the region is as well served as other other bits of the region so we worked really closely with our communications team from the NHS but also with participation and engagement from within the health and social care partnership so we ran over 70 <laughs> engagement events over um over two years because it, it we had to ensure that people understood why we'd done what we'd done and what the impact of that was and that this was only about supporting people um in the ways that they really needed so it wasn't about um cutting beds to state to, to save money it wasn't about managers sort of make, making decisions without consulting with the public and and in fact, almost universally, what we found is that when people understood that and that this was being done in response to kind of wanting to do more for more people, it landed OK. We've had to be able to evidence that um, that the single hospice unit is serving people from all over Fife, that um, the access to it is better than it's ever been. So I think evidence, both quantitative and qualitative, is really important. And we've just had to submit assurances now. This was all approved about six months ago. and We've just had to submit data to evidence that we've sustained um, you know, improvements in care. But um, it's been about helping people to understand the decision-making process. We knew we had to work differently, but it was really the pandemic that accelerated the need for that. Um, and, you know, I, I it was a silver lining of the pandemic that we could effect change much more quickly. Um, yeah. Joe, jo, jo, thank you. You you have inspired us. Uh, it, where can we learn more? Of, of the five model could you put is there is there anything that you can pop into the chat box by way of links or anything i mean i'm happy to be emailed and if anybody wants to have a conversation i would say you know there's always some discomfort talking in this way because we're we still have a lot to learn with there are definitely you know we haven't um we haven't uh, improved things for everybody i mean we actually just had an interview last week for a big chief scientist office grant to do something akin to the gold line in Yorkshire. I don't know many, if many of yes. you are familiar with that. So we, what we would really like in Scotland as a whole, but maybe in Fife and Highland as collaborators to begin with, would be a single point of access for any patient and family, you know, who might be in the last year of life. They don't have to be, but, um, but to navigate the generalist and specialist um, and sort of health and social care, third sector um, care. So, you know, that that's a sort of future direction for us. So we're definitely not um, here to say, you know, aren't we great, we've got it sorted, because we haven't. It's just a lot better than it was. We also wanted to bring you an, an update uh, from Faith Holloway from Hospice UK, who's the programme lead from Compassionate Employers um, in relation to what's been happening uh, uh, legislation-wise 
uh, with carers. Um, Faith, thank you very much indeed. Hi, Max. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I just realised as I'm sitting here and listening to this, and it's all very interesting that in the whole time I've been at Hospice UK, I don't think I've ever joined a clinical echo. So this is really um, interesting and nice. And I now see what all the fuss is about and why you all continue to come and love uh, this space so much. So yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I did this update recently on our kind of all staff meeting for Hospice UK and Max thought there would be some interest and maybe use in me continuing this or extending it into this space as well, which is uh, an update on the Carers Leave Act, which has recently come into law. Actually, as recently as yesterday, we got the confirmed date for it, which I can now share with you, which is an exciting update, very timely. Um, so if you're not aware, the Carers Leave Act, it's been in kind of going through all the different uh, motions and processes that it needs to go through through the government for quite a while now. It was brought forward by Wendy Chamberlain um, and it gained all the required kind of royal assent um, that it needed in the past few months and even the last year or so um, to mean that it will now become law. So there's some interesting stats. The reason that I ended up sharing this and why I thought it was really important to bring to people's attention is I, I saw some stats around it and I can get a little bit tunnel vision and the work that I do at Compassionate Employers. We, you know, we focus on bereavement in the workplace and caring in the workplace um, and can sometimes just make the assumption that people know that these things are going on. But I saw a stat from Carers UK very recently that said 67% uh, of people were unsure if their employer was prepared for the Carers Leave Act, so didn't know if they actually knew that it existed. And then another one that is less recent, but within the kind of last few years, which was nearly 40% of carers don't mention that they're a carer to their employer because they think nothing would change. They don't really see the point of sharing their caring responsibilities because they don't think that their employer would do anything about it, which is obviously very concerning for us because our entire mission is to make workplaces more compassionate and more friendly to people who are caring or bereaved. So hopefully by the end of this uh, very kind of whistle-stop tour of it, you will no longer be one you know, part of that 67%, you will be the employer that feels empowered to do something about this and to be prepared, not just when it comes into law, but hopefully, you know, now you can have the upper hand and start to think about this before you are required to do it. So hopefully give you a little bit of a head start above everyone else. So I tried to very simply lay it out what this means for you, because I know sometimes it can be complicated. I have a link at the end of this if you want to read the full act. Um, but if you're anything like me, they can be quite confusing, convoluted and quite long winded. So here's essentially what you need to know. Employees, so your staff, everyone in the UK will gain one week's unpaid leave per year. It begins on day one of their employment. So there isn't a required period that they need to have worked for you. So everyone will be eligible for this. Um, you, in this case, carers, or they can book carers leave in advance. It can be half days or it can be full days. So there is some flexibility around that. As I've mentioned, it will become law. And we now know since yesterday that the start date will be April 6 next year. So it means you have you know, a couple of months, um, three or four months to get prepared for this. So I would encourage you to think about it now. Start talking to your HR teams if they're not already thinking about this or talking about this, what it means for your organizations. Um, please don't leave it till April because then it might become quite stressful to implement this. Start to look at your carers policy now or start to chat to the carers in your organization to make sure that everyone is aware of this. Um, and something else I guess to mention is this, this law, this Carers Leave Act or Carers Leave Bill will be protected in the same way as any other family related leave. So similar to maternity leave, opportunity leave, adoption leave. So it is important to take it seriously. It's not just kind of a nice to have. It is something that you will be required to 
uh, adhere to. So my next slide, I think, is, yeah, just reminding us of who is Akira. I think we often hear, you know, we support 95,000 employees at the moment. 30% um, of our members are hospices. So while we have a lot of people in the finance and industry, um, uh, insurance, we have people in care homes um, as our employers, but um, we have worked a lot with the hospices as well. And what we hear often is that even though we know that there are quite a large percentage of employees who are carers, estimated to be one in seven, although it's interesting, we do see this much higher across the care sectors. Um, so there's definitely a strong correlation between if you work in a caring profession, you are more likely to be a carer in your home life as well, which is interesting. I'm sure we could go into all of that in a completely separate conversation. Um, but in terms of carers, a lot of people go without support or don't disclose that they need support because they don't actually realize they're a carer. So a carer by the NHS definition is anyone who looks after a family member, partner or a friend who needs help and cannot cope without your support. So it's not just providing physical care or, you know, helping someone to um, dress themselves or wash themselves or feed themselves. It can be things like picking up their medication for them if they're not mobile or they're not able to get out of the house. It's, you know, bringing them groceries, anything that they wouldn't be able to do or access without you means that you're entitled to care support. And that can be financial support, extra support in the workplace. So it is important to educate your staff on whether or not they're a carer outside of work. There's a whole lot of stigma that comes to that, which I recognize as a battle in and of itself. But I think educating people that they may potentially be a carer um, is a great first step. So in terms of what we've been doing to help with that, um, we've been trying to raise awareness of just what it means to be a carer. These are some quite scary statistics around caring and retention for employers. Um, you know, we know a lot of people leave care uh, or leave work rather because of their caring responsibilities. We know it's essentially like having a second full-time job. It's incredibly demanding to be a carer for most or, you know, a decent proportion of people. Um, and it's something that a lot of employers um, and their employees who have caring responsibilities should be worried about because it's something that, you know, adds stress. It means people can be less productive at work or have, you know, be more tired because they're having to do so much more outside of their day-to-day -day role. So the more we can do to support them, you know, the, the better we can retain our people that have expertise, that have skills that we want in our workplaces. Um, and also, you know, this can be relatively simple. A lot of people, I think up to 95% of people, say if they just had more flexibility and, and um, more flexible working patterns, they could stay in work. So there's a huge percentage of that 600 that leave work every day that um, definitely could be prevented. So that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, and in terms of supporting this on Carers Rights Day on our LinkedIn page, we shared some um, documents or some kind of resources. So I think that's on the next slide please. Thank you. So this is a carer's checklist for the Carer's Leave Act. Really useful, again, if the actual Carer's Leave Act is not super digestible for some people, then this is a really easy way for carers themselves to understand what it means for them, what questions they should be asking you as an employer. Um, and it can also be helpful for you to understand the perspective of carers in your organisation. And we created this kind of handy poster that outlines those five points that I've said, although that's now out of date, I've just realised because we do know the date now, so we can maybe update that. Um, but these are all available on our LinkedIn. If you want a copy of this, um, please feel free to email us. They're completely free and you're welcome to have as many digital copies of it as you need. Um, and my final slide, I think, is just to give you more information if you do want to read the press release or any more information 
again, to get you ready for April. That is the QR code that you can scan and go to the government website. Um, and we are offering some free sessions. Um, you know, do get in touch with us if you're worried about this upcoming date in April or anything around your care or support. This is quite literally what we're here for. Um, Compassionate Employers, to be completely transparent, is a paid for program, but we're happy to have conversations with you to at least make sure you have um, all the essential information and to have a conversation, see if we can help you further than that as well. So that's our email inbox. Um, we're around at least for the next week or so, and then we'll be on a little bit of a break and then back in January. But feel free to email us and we can find a time either before the holiday break or in the new year as well. So hopefully that's helpful. Whistle stop tour. I know it's a lot of information, but hopefully it's useful. Faith, thank you. I didn't realize. Uh, and it's really helpful to know. Um, can I ask just one question? Uh, who pays for it? Or, or Who how pays is... for the program? Y yes. Or... So usually it'll come out of um, HR and wellbeing budgets and organisations. Right. Um, with our hospice members, we have a discounted rate, which is actually open at the moment. Um, we got some funding. I sit in the income generation team, so we got some funding from one of our generous funders who wanted to support hospices. So that's um, the no, most I, kind of I discounted guess, I, I did, rate. My question, just in terms of, a, of an employer... Uh, employee says i'm looking after my mum but the employer has to has to replace them while they're away who, who pays for that that's a really good question i think that hasn't been fully outlined by the government yet i'm hoping that because they've now set the date that it's going to be implemented by that they'll start to roll that out because i think that's probably quite a considerable gap that we've seen is addressing this particularly in healthcare so we have members from the NHS, from hospices, from care homes who are going to honestly quite struggle with this in terms of, um, yeah, replacing people if they need to take carers leave or, yeah, well, I think it's really important that carers have access to leave, ideally paid leave, but also unpaid leave. Um, obviously, that has implications for employers. So we'll continue to update people as soon as we hear information on that. As far as I know, we haven't heard anything of what that looks like yet. But, yeah, given that we now know the date, hopefully that's coming soon. We've covered a lot of ground uh, today, uh, a, a, a lot of ground. I, I've learned a lot and it's been really helpful. Uh, I, I wanted to finish uh, with a poem as ever and um, Benjamin Zephaniah has been a hero of mine um, uh, just for his integrity, his very clear moral compass, uh, his ability to speak to power. I, I wanted him to to give us our, our Christmas uh, words. It's it's a vegetarian Christmas uh, uh, poem. He was six weeks ago. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor uh, and died last week. Um, so I, I wanted to finish with with his words. Let me take this opportunity to wish you a very merry Christmas. <laughs> Be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. <laughs> because turkeys just wanna have fun. Turkeys are cool and turkeys are wicked. And every turkey has a mum. <laughs> be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. Don't eat it, keep it alive. It could be your mate and not on your plate. 
Say, yo, Turkey, I'm on your side. I've got lots of friends who are turkeys. And all of them fear Christmas time. They say, Benj, hey, Benj, man, child. I want to enjoy it, man. It's a Jamaican turkey. But those humans have destroyed it, man. And those humans are out of their mind. Yes, I've got lots of friends who are turkeys. And all have the right to a life. Not to be caged up and genetically made up by a farmer and his wife. No. Turkeys just want to play reggae. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> turkeys just want to hip hop. Have you ever seen a nice young turkey saying, Hey man, I cannot wait for the chop. <laughs> turkeys would like to get presents. Turkeys want to watch Christmas TV. Turkeys have brains and turkeys feel pain in many ways like you and me. I once knew a turkey. His name was Turkey. He said, Benji, explain to me, please. Who put the turkey in Christmas? And what happens to Christmas trees? I said, I'm not too sure, Turkey, but it's got nothing to do with Christmas. No, humans get greedy and waste more than need be. And businessmen make lots of cash. So, be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. Invite them indoors for some greens. Let them eat cake. And let them partake in a plate of organic grown beans. They love it. Be nice to your turkeys this Christmas and spare them the cut of the knife. Join Turkeys United and they'll be delighted and you'll make new friends for life. Good night. Thank you.